Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined, as always, by Bill Galston of Brookings and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. Our guest is Clark Neely, Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute. Welcome, one and all. The aftermath of George Floyd's murder has been tumultuous. And um, as I argue in my column today, which you can all read uh, at the Bulwark, um, it has shattered at least one assumption I think many of us held, which namely that we were all so cocooned in our separate information silos that actual events didn't have the power to move public opinion by very much. Certainly, uh, when we went through the impeachment trial, for example, uh, the uh, the needle didn't didn't move. Uh, but what we've learned in the last two weeks that uh, since Memorial Day, we've seen a tectonic shift in public opinion about police behavior, racial discrimination, and the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, we've also seen the president's approval rating tumble. So um, I'm. So delighted, Clark, that you could join us. Cato, uh, the Cato Institute has been a leader on criminal justice reform for, I think, more or less forever. And you've written a lot about these questions. Now, there are a lot of proposals floating in the ether these days about what to do about policing to improve it. Let's start with the most extreme one, uh, abolish the police or sometimes defund the police. How do you respond to that one? I'm a little puzzled by it, to be to be honest. I'm not sure if it's more a proposal or more a slogan or more an expression of frustration. Uh, I, I'm a, as hardcore libertarian as I think you're likely to meet, and even I believe that it's it's necessary to have some kind of a police force. I'm not in favor of privatizing policing, and I'm even less in favor of getting rid of them altogether. In fact, I think it's vitally important for a society to have a well-functioning criminal justice system. And I don't really believe it's possible to have a well-functioning criminal justice system uh, without a police force of some kind. Now, that being said, um, is it the case that we ask our police to do far too much in terms of enforcing uh, laws that that shouldn't even be on the books in the first place and using the criminal justice system to um, address all manner of social ills from substance abuse and uh, mental health issues all the way to problems of homelessness? Absolutely, we do. Uh, and probably some of the resources that now go to police could be better spent elsewhere. But I'm uncomfortable with the whole defund the police, uh, uh, you know, language. It just doesn't seem constructive to me. Yeah. I just want to bring in Bill Galston on this for a minute. Bill, um, are you concerned that uh, this kind of language is going to um, damage the message of the Black Lives Matter movement and of the police reform movement in general, and that it may wind up hurting the Democratic Party if it's associated too much with radical proposals like that? Well, that's exactly why both Joe Biden and congressional Democrats have steered so far clear of it, mm-hmm. uh, noticeably so. And uh, in my column for this week, I reproduce statistics on public opinion. Uh, the whether it's a whether it's a a policy, a slogan, or an expression of <laughs> despair, as you know, as Clark laid it out. It enjoys the support of precisely 16% of the American people. 
uh, even among African Americans, it barely gets to one third. It is a it is a total loser, uh, and I think everybody understands that. Yeah, or, or nearly everyone. And and one of the one of the obvious problems with any proposal to eliminate the police. I mean, it's obviously utopian. You know, if men were angels, no government would be necessary, as James Madison said. Um, but also, it would mean we you know we live in a country that has more weapons than than population. Um, and it would mean that the wealthy would be able to afford private security and people who are not wealthy enough to afford private security would have to be on their own. And, uh, the, it, it would just, it would hurt, um, people who are at the lower end of the economic scale the most. So that's one of the reasons, terrible idea, but, but not all the ideas and proposals that are out there are terrible. So one of them, um, I've seen it described in various ways, but, um, it's called unbundling the police. That is, uh, as you were just saying, Clark, sort of um, changing the, the the basket of things that police are expected to handle. So, um, what about the problem of you know mental illness? How, there, there's I've seen statistics that something like one out of five police encounters is with a mentally ill person in some distress. Um, what about those? I think we've got to change that for sure. Uh, those encounters uh, sometimes turn out uh, tragically, as, as you know very well. Um, police tend to respond um, to to you know people acting out in a um, irrational and sometimes even violent way um, in a way that tends to escalate the situation as opposed to de-escalate it. And I'm not saying that all police do that. I'm just saying that it seems to be a tendency. And and um, I think American police are are quick to use their weapons. I think there's no secret about that. And there have been uh, a significant number of deaths that could otherwise have been avoided. And so I think um, we do have better tools to respond to problems of mental illness. Uh, but we have to recognize that a significant part of the problem here is over-criminalization. We criminalize so much conduct, including perfectly uh, uh, you know, morally rightful conduct. It doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't represent any threat to the fabric of civil society. We criminalize things that lots of decent people want to do and believe they should have a right to do and continue doing, even though it's not illegal. And so to some extent, we put police in an untenable position when we expect them to enforce laws that not that many people support and that uh, large chunks of the population routinely violate. That is absolutely going to lead to problems. So yes, we should unbundle, but we also really have to take a hard look at over-criminalization at the same time, in my view. Do you view. want to give us an example besides smoking <clears throat> marijuana? Well, uh, I'm a parent of two children, and I really dread when they get old enough to engage in sexting, which is, of course, the transmission of, of sexual imagery using your, your smartphones. Um, this is something that something like 15% of all teens admit to doing, which means it's probably more like 30 or 40% who actually do it. Um, and one of the things that's absolutely horrifying is that simply using an electronic device uh, to to take imagery, uh, uh, you know, of the of the genitals or, or sexual activities of a person under the age of 18 um, is a federal felony that, that has a mandatory minimum of 15 years. And people have been prosecuted for just that, not, not for, you know, selling it or anything like that, literally just taking the image. Um, and the same thing in many states. And so um, that's an example of, of conduct that is, that is routine. It's widespread. Um, every state in the, in the country, uh, two 17-year-olds may have a sexual relationship without breaking the law. But if one of them uses an electronic device to capture any part of that, which they often do, they have, will have committed a very serious federal felony and probably a state offense as well. And they are absolutely being prosecuted for it. 
Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you there though. I gotta say, Clark, I mean, you're you're a dad, you're a lawyer. Tell your kids not to do that when the time comes. <laughs> well, no, I absolutely will not. I'm sorry, I will not tell them not to do that when the time comes. They have a First Amendment right uh, to do that. I'm I'm not saying it's necessarily something I would want them to do or that it's very smart to do, but the, but when you're 17 years old, in my view, you have the you know the right to decide that. If you can sign up for the U.S. Marine Corps and have them put a rifle in your hand to go off to foreign lands and engage in warfare on the part of your country, you can decide whether or not to record you know the act activities that you engage in that are perfectly lawful. So I hear, I know you were kind of partly being facetious, but I think it's important to recognize what an incredible imposition um, on people's freedom, even a law like that is. It really is. Yeah. Well, of course, this is just another example of a law that was passed with good intentions and then was found to have unintended effects. Yes, precisely. The law was passed to fight child pornography, but the net was cast too broadly and it, it pulled in a lot of people who were behaving in ways that we would not necessarily think are are bad, though you and I would probably disagree about whether 17-year-olds should be taking pictures of their genitals and sending them to their girlfriends. But <laughs> but let's move on. Why do you uh, think because- it works only one way, Mona? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I knew this podcast would you know, get into the gutter sometime, and I, I guess we're there. <laughs> Sooner uh, than later when you have a libertarian on, I imagine. <laughs> Um, okay, so the, the, now we're going to, just just because of that, we've got to get into the really uh, dorky part here. We've got to talk about qualified immunity. Everybody's, this phrase is on everybody's lips. It is this doctrine in the law that, that um, gives a defense against a civil suit, not a criminal, uh, not a criminal accusation, but a civil suit uh, for certain public employees who violate people's rights. And it's complicated, but if you could give us your um, praise about qualified immunity and why it's a problem when it comes to policing. You bet. There's a reason why everybody's talking about it. And it's because qualified immunity is the cornerstone of our near zero accountability policy for law enforcement. That has been a disastrous policy. We're seeing the frustration from that policy spill out into the streets. And qualified immunity is literally the cornerstone of that policy. And and what it provides uh, is it is a completely invented out of whole cloth, judge-made doctrine that purports to be an interpretation of our primary federal civil rights law, uh, known as Section 1983. And the law as enacted by Congress is quite broad. And what it says is that uh, any state actor, meaning anybody who's employed by the state or local government, including police, uh, shall be liable to the person injured for the deprivation of any rights. Any rights. And what the Supreme Court has done is it has vastly narrowed the scope of this uh, civil rights remedy so that you now may only sue police and other government officials for the violation of a clearly established right. That Those two words, clearly established, were effectively added to the statute by the Supreme Court. And what that has been interpreted to require is that before you may sue a police officer or other government official for something they did to you, you have to find a case in the same jurisdiction where, where a police officer has done that exact same thing to someone else already and been told that that specific thing violates uh, the Constitution or, or their federal rights. And if you can't find that case, if it's not on the books, your civil rights lawsuit against that police officer will be tossed on qualified immunity grounds, even if everybody agrees that they violated your rights. That is hugely problematic. Here's a question, sort of by way of analogy. Right now, if if there is a successful suit uh, for the violation of civil rights uh, by officers, the payout comes from the taxpayers. Is that correct? 
That is correct. There's a 2014 study by UCLA law professor Joanna Schwartz, where she documents that 99.98% of all dollars paid out in civil rights uh, claims are paid not by the officer who engaged in the misconduct, but by the city or the department, which effectively means by us, the taxpayers. I, that's called, and, and, and that's done pursuant to this principle of indemnification. I think that's a really bad policy. I have some ideas about how to do better, but that is the way we do it now. So that would seem to set up a very, very bad incentive structure. I mean, you could analogize it to doctors, you know, doctors who work for hospitals or surgery centers or whatever, they get health insurance and the doctors have to get their own health insurance, but also the surgery center has to take out health insurance for, against malpractice. And, and if the, if a particular doctor gets sued too often, then their rates will go up or the surgery center will say, you know what, we're, we're not going to have you work with us anymore because you're, you're just costing us too much money. You could have multiple claims against a police officer, but because it doesn't come out of the union's money, it doesn't come out of the policeman's own pocket, it comes out of the taxpayer's pocket, there really is that same sort of incentive to keep them in line, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. And and the analogy to medical malpractice insurance is apt. I used to do medical malpractice defense in my career, early career as a lawyer. And I think one of the real heartbreaks about criminal justice reform is how many really great policies there are available. I sometimes describe criminal justice reform as a vast orchard of low-hanging fruit that we're just not picking. Um, and, and requiring police to carry their own professional liability insurance and then pay damages out of that insurance is one such example. It would align incentives beautifully. The worse the police officer behaves, the more claims he or she will generate and the more expensive that insurance will be. And what will happen is that the worst police officer officers will be literally priced out of the market. They will become uninsurable and therefore unemployable. And insurance companies are so good at identifying risk. They would spot the problem officers very early in their career and divert them into either better and, and more effective training or eventually uh, force them out of the, the, the vocation altogether. And what could be better than that? Final question on this topic. Should we look at Camden, um, their experiment with eliminating the police and rebuilding it from the ground up with with encouragement? I think we should look at a lot of things in Camden with encouragement. Uh, I'm proud to call Scott Thompson, the former chief of, of the Camden Police Department, my, my, my friend. I serve with him on the board of New York University Law School's policing project. And what he achieved in Camden, New Jersey is nothing short of miraculous. It would, he took one of the most corrupt and ineffective police departments in the entire country, and he completely turned it around. And, and he made it not only effective, but he made it ethical and respectful. And he made it you know, a, 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 an institution that people um, once again had faith in, they had trust in. And the question whether or not it's necessary to completely reconstitute the police department, I really think depends on the depth of the rot, and it depends on the specific department. But what uh, Scott Thompson achieved in Camden is so inspiring because it suggests that we could reproduce that elsewhere if we simply have the will. One statistic that I found was that after they reconstituted it, which by the way, increased the number of police, it didn't decrease them, but there was a lot more training and it's a very different system. They had to um, go, go through uh, psychological testing and other things before they could be hired. Cl complaints about excessive force were down 95% since <clears throat> the reorganization, which is which is fantastic. If um, I could, could I share an anecdote? There's, there's yeah. there, one of the most incredible things I have ever seen is a video um, of the Camden police 
under Scott Thompson responding to a call about a man who entered a fast food restaurant with a knife. And there's video of it because the, they got it from the short circuit TV. What would happen in almost any big city police department when police come and confront that man is that if he doesn't put the knife down immediately, they're going to shoot him. What happened in Camden is that they ordered him to put the knife down and he didn't. And they formed a human cordon around him and they followed him down the block, not using any force, not shooting at him until he just became sufficiently distracted that one of the police officers was able to knock him down, take away the knife. Nobody got hurt seriously. There were no deaths. And they were able to solve that problem in a way that was humane and ethical. And it shows that it can be done. And as I said a moment ago, what's lacking so often is not the understanding of how to do it. It's the will to do it. Um, yeah, uh, that's uh, that's interesting. Um, does anybody on this panel want to weigh in with any thoughts about um, about police unions? Uh, because, because Linda, you were a former union person, but, um, but conservatives tend to be highly critical of teachers unions for good reasons, in my opinion, but, uh, on the other hand, very supportive of police unions. Uh, do you want to, do you want to weigh sure. in on that? A absolutely. Yeah. And you're right about that. They tend to be, uh, not very enthusiastic about most public service unions, but uh, far more so when it comes to police and fire. Uh, and part of that is that those tend to be much more conservative workforces. The unions themselves often endorse Republican candidates uh, for office. So there is much more of a, an affinity there. And of course, the Republican Party has a history of trying to proclaim that they are the law and order party. But uh, unions, and, and specifically police unions, are a big impediment to getting rid of the bad apples, just like teachers unions are uh, with bad apple teachers. And I think, you know, some of the things uh, that uh, Clark talked about are really interesting um, as a possible way to, uh, to tackle some of this. I think the whole liability issue is one that if you are protected from whatever might come your way if you are a bad actor and engage in violent acts and, and even illegal acts, um, I, I think there's not a whole lot of incentive uh, to stop you from, from doing it. You do it as long as you can get away with it, as long as you don't lose your job. And so I think the idea of providing uh, less immunity directly, uh, particularly in civil suits, and the idea of requiring uh, these uh, officers to have an insurance is probably a very good one. I mean, it isn't just doctors and people in the medical profession or in the legal profession that have to have insurance. I'm a corporate director. We have to have insurance, uh, even though, you know, a company may be sued by shareholders or others. It's not just the companies uh, that's liable, the individual directors, all of my personal wealth. Uh, is liable if, if a plaintiff is successful. And that's why we have directors and officers insurance. So I think, you know, there's would be a market for this. And I think that's one way of addressing it. And I will say, Mona, that, you know, I've always had a somewhat more skeptical view of uh, the police and police violence. Part of that is my history and, and growing up the way I did. My grandfather um, spent 11 and a half years in federal prison for being a bootlegger. Uh, and it started during Prohibition, but he remained behind bars even after Prohibition was lifted. And so, you know, I didn't have quite the affinity uh, for the police growing up. I had 
family members, uh, one of whom was an alcoholic who was so badly beaten by the Denver Police Department, um, a totally nonviolent guy, but he'd had too much to drink. He was so badly beaten that his lungs collapsed and he ended up in the hospital in, in critical condition. So, I, you know, maybe because of that background, I'm not as knee-jerk. It's always the police. The police are always right. Um, I've seen, even in my life as an adult, I've had instances where I was a victim of crime and the police acted inappropriately and racially profiled in trying to find the person who had perpetrated the crime. So uh, I, I just think we have to be careful at always assuming, uh, even as conservatives, that police, each and every individual policeman is always on the right side. All right. This was also a very active week for journalism. We witnessed the New York Times under pressure from its own staffers firing James Bennett. It's one of its top editors and thought to be in the running to be executive editor, which would be the top job at the New York Times over the controversial Tom Cotton op-ed, and the Philadelphia Inquirer fired their executive editor, although I think they said he resigned, but clearly he was forced out after he published a piece with the headline, Buildings Matter Too. Damon, you're concerned. This is is cancel culture. This is journalism uh, being too woke in your judgment. Well, I, I mean, I think each case is a little bit different. I think Buildings Matter 2 is, is a bad headline in the current uh, environment, but uh, I, I don't really think, in my view, that it rises to quite a firing offense for someone who's been uh, the head of the Philly Inquirer for many years and seen it through some very difficult times through downsizing and other problems. Uh, so that seems a little over the top, but I wouldn't really want to go to the mat to sort of defend that decision on the substance. Um, Can I just interject really yeah. quick, Damon? Didn't he, didn't this editor at the Philadelphia Inquirer um, get some sort of a prize for a series about how unsafe the Philadelphia schools were for the children? Yes, he's a, he's a prize-winning editor and, and has had all kinds of journalistic accomplishments there, again, through a period where resources have been uh, slim and shrinking. So mm-hmm. uh, he's done many good things for the journalistic organization. And so this this to me sounds like something that is kind of unnecessarily uh, extreme, which I think you can use to describe lots of other things going on. Uh, it came out late last week that um, Andrew Sullivan, a very controversial but also quite esteemed uh, sort of center-rightish uh, author who is the, you know, a longtime uh, New Republic editor and has gone on to be a prominent blogger and written many other things over the years. He's been writing for the last Father of years. Gay Marriage in America. Yes, indeed. He wrote the very first piece, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I know, the first piece in favor of gay marriage for the New Republic in the late 80s. So he was very much uh, at the leading edge of that policy. But he's been uh, writing columns, uh, a weekly column for uh, New York Magazine for about four years. And it came out late last week that he's been having to subject 
uh, kind of he's been having to submit his columns, especially if they touch on anything having to do with social issues, a day early, and it then gets circulated to a series of staffers who sort of vet it for uh, for triggering uh, events, and then it gets edited, and he has to review it again. And this was all in a, a piece in uh, the uh, the Spectator magazine late last week. Um, there have also been strange sort British of... British Spectator. Uh, I don't remember. Was it in the British or the U.S. version? Oh, I thought Actually, it was the British. Oh, maybe yeah, maybe not. I think I it was know. the U.S. version. I'm not sure. But if, if okay. listeners Google Andrew Sullivan Spectator, it'll come right up. Um, and, and, you know, there have been uh, uh, rumors and, and whispering about similar things going on at Vox, which is a solidly left-leaning website. Uh, Matthew Iglesias, who's one of the founders of the website and has been there from the beginning, uh, he was tweeting things uh, kind of indicating that there were tensions like this on staff there. And then, of course, the New York Times is the really big story. And it's a complicated issue. I do believe that Bennett uh, officially resigned, not uh, not officially fired, but clearly he was pushed into doing it. And sort of, uh, I think, yeah, A.G. Salzberger, the publisher, uh, sort of forced him into it. Uh, I think this is bad. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to defend the cotton op-ed on substance, but the fact is that Many of its critics have been just outrightly lying about what it actually said, which is always a sign that actually the thing wasn't quite as bad as you're indicating in the first place, or else you'd be pointing to what it really said, rather than making up uh, fibs about what Cotton argued. But instead of focusing on the substance of what the people didn't like in the op-ed, they immediately went to, we should never have published this. This is uh, making our staff unsafe and uh, demanding the head of, uh, of Bennett, who has been the head of the op-ed uh, department of the Times for several years. And it's, it's the, my issue with it is, aside from injustices of firing people who don't deserve it, is that it, it results in a great narrowing of what uh, is acceptable to talk about and sort of shifts the, uh, the emphasis of the editorial side of the, the newspaper and also in, in other ways, the reporting side further and further into a kind of woke left direction, which I don't think is good for the paper or for the United States, given that with all the downsizing that we've seen in journalism, the New York Times is singularly situated to be a kind of national newspaper for the country, but it cannot serve anything like that role if it ends up sounding uh, like the nation on the op-ed page consistently. Bill, what, one of the things, look, it is not easy uh, to make decisions about what should be printed and what should not be printed. Um, every editor and uh, owner of any kind of platform makes choices and, uh, and uses discretion. We understand that. What is distressing about some of these episodes and then specifically about the one at the New York Times is this, the style of argument, which really isn't an argument. It's a, it's a cry of pain from people who say, from, from my perspective as a black reporter, I felt personally endangered by this article. I, this, it, this puts, what did they say? This puts New York, black New York Times staff in danger, unquote. 
that kind of an argument seems to me to be a little adult. I mean, the the people. Yes, you disagree. I disagreed with the with the Cotton editorial also, but if you disagree, you write a counter editorial. You you point out what you think is the bad logic or the or the bad reasoning or whatever. Um, but to say that you are personally endangered is this extension of the kind of thing we see on college campuses where students feel entitled not to be made uncomfortable by ideas and that they don't agree with. And and this is always couched in this, these terms of safety. And I think there's something vaguely Maoist about it, or am I overstating it? Not much. Uh, my graduate school alma mater, the University of Chicago, uh, came out with a very fine statement of principles and practices about free speech on campus a few years ago. And that statement, which everybody who's involved in universities or thinking about universities should read, made it very clear uh, that student rights do not include the right not to be disturbed by what you're hearing or reading or seeing or learning. Uh, and, you know, that kind of subjective veto shouldn't be, shouldn't be given to any person or, or any group. Uh, that said, you know, speaking as an op-ed writer for six years, who's gotten familiar with the editorial practices uh, at the Wall Street Journal, I found it very hard to believe, although I guess it's true, uh, that the Cotton piece was published without Bennett's having having reviewed it. I mean, he, he said publicly he hadn't read it. Mm. Uh, so setting aside substance and just looking at process, uh, that's not the sign, it seems to me, of a well-functioning editorial department. That's not, especially when you're talking about a piece by a U.S. senator, that's not, that's not something that you uh, delegate to subordinates. One other point. Uh, I haven't looked at the New York Times masthead frequently, but for a long time, it read, the slogan read, all the news that's fit to print. Right? And that suggested that there was a perimeter outside of which something should not be published. Uh, and a number of people have asked the question, if Alex Jones had submitted an op-ed to the New York Times, would the Times, in order to create a controversy or expose people to different points of view, would the New York Times have published that piece? Uh, and uh, I think a lot of people would say it wouldn't have and it shouldn't have. So... You know, before we all start reciting John Stuart Mill, mm -hmm. we have to acknowledge that judgments are being made someplace. Uh, they're unavoidable. And at the boundary, they're always going to be controversial. Clark, uh, this, this op-ed, incendiary though I think it was and, and misjudged in, in its logic as I believe it was, was written by a sitting United States senator who has a broad following in this country and represents a point of view that a significant number of Americans agree with. Um, 
is is he the sort of person who should be treated as a pariah? And what does the New York Times become if that's the standard? Well, I think this was a huge mistake. Um, I find Tom Cotton's policies abhorrent. Um, I think he's tragically mistaken in his assessment of of what's going on and and the, the you know, sort of the fundamental underlying dynamics. But I think one of the most powerful things you can do with someone who is so fundamentally mistaken is give them a platform to to uh, to make sure everybody understands. Uh, and hears their views so that they can assess the quality of those views themselves. If uh, if I were uh, trying to advise uh, Tom Cotton, for example, maybe he's thinking about higher office one day. Um, I would sort of urge him to try to be as either quiet or um, you know uh, disseminate these ideas. Um, as little as possible. And I think the New York Times did those of us who disagree with Tom Cotton a huge favor in giving him such a platform um, to spread his fundamentally misbegotten ideas. Hey, Linda, didn't the New York Times publish an op-ed by uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad at one point? I seem to remember that. Yeah, They they Um, did. And by the way, back in the late 1980s, I think it was, I submitted uh, a piece to the editorial page editor, and I won't say who the name of the editor was at that time, but when they got back to me, uh, what he said to me was, you have plenty of other outlets like Commentary Magazine and the Wall Street <laughs> Journal. We do not need to lend our pages to this point of view, which mm-hmm. I thought was quite interesting. So they do uh, turn down people uh, and uh, they, they don't have such a great record in terms of having people from a different point of view. And it, as you may recall, Brett Stevens has run into trouble uh, when his column moved from the Wall Street Journal to the New York Times. There was a lot of backlash the, the Washington Post is actually much more even-handed, in, I think, in having uh, conservative voices. I don't happen to always agree with people like Hugh Hewitt or Mark Thiessen, but they are represented on that side. And as much as I dislike uh, the, the Tom Cotton piece, as much as I disagree with Tom Cotton on a host of issues, the idea that he should uh, not be able to be published in a respectable newspaper is, I think, wrong, wrongheaded. Yeah, I, I am worried about the, um, I'm worried about the culture there because uh, I respect the paper a lot. It has tremendous reporting, um, great quality, uh, and and it does have a storied reputation in this country for its you know position as the newspaper of record and all of that. Um, but you know, one of the one of the people who's come under fire in this era is a friend of mine, Barry Weiss, who is who works on the editorial page, and um, and you know, she she has the idea that she is now a hate figure among some of the more woke staffers um, at the New York Times is just unbelievable to me because Barry is a um, middle of the road, you know, centrist kind of, she's a lesbian. She's, she's very, you know, sort of avant-garde in her lifestyle and all that. Um, and, uh, but you know, she's, she's very concerned about Israel. She's writes a lot about issues of concern to the Jewish community. She, um, was critical of the, uh, uh, organizers of the women's March because of their ties to Louis Farrakhan and so forth. And she has really uh, been been treated quite badly by some of these people online. And I find that um, a, a sort of 
uh, emblematic of the mood that I fear uh, is is at the times. And apparently it's quite a generational thing. People over 40 are more reasonable and moderate and people under 40 are more self-righteous and um, intolerant. So, um, Could all I right. Could I just briefly um, a follow-up on that? I, I, mean, yeah. I, I agree with you completely. I think it is also important to to view what's going on at the Times and in other media companies as a part of a much broader cultural thing going on at the moment, because, you know, we also have protesters pulling down uh, Christopher Columbus statues. Oh, we're going to come well. to that in our next segment. Okay, we'll Just come to that. that. It's, it's, yeah. All right, but I, when we do, we, we should reflect back on this discussion and see it all as kind of of a piece, uh, that this mm-hmm. is very much a moment. Yes. Okay. Well, let's get right into that. Cancel culture, as it's sometimes called, was very much in evidence this past week. Um, You may have thought that the American Civil War ended at Appomattox Courthouse in April of 1865. But um, yeah, well, you'd be right, except that the culture war rages on and on. And amazingly enough, it it continues to uh, find expression in Confederate imagery and statues and flags. So this week, the NASCAR Association announced that Confederate flags will no longer be permitted at races. Uh, HBO Max removed Gone with the Wind from its lineup, which is uh, a temporary measure. They're going to, uh, I think, add some context before they put it back up. And a number of statues have either been felled or are marked for removal, most notably the three-story high sculpture of Robert E. Lee that has stood in Richmond, Virginia since, well, not since the Civil War, but since 1924, the heyday of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, Governor Ralph Northam has declared his intention to remove it, and the matter is currently before the courts. So... uh, Damon, I on this issue, I don't think these are hard calls, but maybe what am I not seeing? I mean, I think it's great that NASCAR did what it did, it's a private organization, and I think the Confederate flag is offensive to a lot of people, including me, and uh, it's fine for them to ban it. Um, I don't know if you've seen Gone with the Wind lately, but I watched it a few years ago and was gobsmacked at how racist it was. Um, so, um, but you, I think have a more, um, moderate view of this. You're, you're not crazy about taking down statues, right? Well, no, it depends. I mean, I personally have no objection whatsoever to getting rid of Confederate statues or, or no longer allowing the Confederate flag. Uh, If it's a private company, that's really up to the company. And and I would applaud it actually. I think taking down gone with the wind from Netflix is frankly uh, ridiculous. Uh, I mean, I, Sure, it's it's racist. Lots of things were racist before the last few decades in ways that they couldn't see and we can see more clearly. But that, 
uh, I think it sort of infantilizes viewers that what are they afraid they're either going to but be converted to the racism or they're going to be so triggered by it that they'll need uh, you know artificial resuscitation. I mean, what exactly are they afraid of? Uh, so that I think is kind of silly. But again, it's a private company. If they want to be silly, they can do that. Um, when it comes to removing public statues, I would prefer that it be done through kind of a legal process, like a legislature vote to do it and then take down the statue properly. I don't really like mobs of people going with a rope and yanking things down um, because that's lawless. Um, but when it comes to broader things like a Christopher Columbus statue, that's, I think, for me in a different category because then the kind of story that's being told to justify the action is a, is a much more radical story about Christopher Columbus and the founding of, of this hemisphere by Europeans many centuries ago as being a kind of uh, initiating a kind of indigenous genocide. And my view is that if the United States and the other countries of this hemisphere have anything good to them, then the story of Christopher Columbus is, is at worst an ambivalent and ambiguous one that doesn't really justify that kind of act. Um, and it, it, it reminds me of a, of a broader tendency on the far left toward iconoclasm, this notion that uh, you know, you, you have the lines of canceling have shifted. I mean, all cultures exclude things, cancel things, but this is an attempt to shift the lines of what's canceled in a kind of violent way and then to act out in, in kind of removing the, uh, the transgression. And, uh, that makes me nervous again because I, I don't like mobs and it's a kind of mob action. And, uh, once, that kind of behavior starts, it's it's hard to know where it's going to stop. So that's sort of where I come down on all of that. The decision to place a statue in a public place is a public decision meant to reflect public standards of what should be honored. And there's every reason to believe that public standards as to what is honorable and therefore worthy of public esteem change over time. Uh, and I have no objection whatsoever uh, to duly constituted public processes, many of which, given, given today's institutional views, are going to be pretty open and transparent, uh, that either leads to the retention of a statue uh, or to its removal because this is the process through which we decide and declare what is honorable. Uh, and every society in every era has done this in one way or another, and we're no exception. So do I like mobs tearing down statues? Well, when it happens after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, I'll confess I didn't object very much, but <laughs> certainly in our No society, tears for the Dzerzhinsky statue. In, there you in go. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and uh, uh, so I'm not in favor of that as a process matter, but just labeling it cancel culture and disapproving it of across the board, I think is a mistake, a pretty deep conceptual mistake. Clark, you had a, a point 
Yeah, I, I, just a quick point, and that is that um, I certainly agree with everything that's been said about um, public statues. I think that, that when the government uh, puts up a memorial or a statue of some kind, that should reflect uh, community values. But in terms of what private companies should do, I think they should be left um, to, to make that decision themselves. And I think something that we shouldn't fail to, re to, to point out is how incredibly powerful it can be to be reminded of how casual people were about something we now realize is, is horrific, is, is morally indefensible and even evil. And sometimes there are certain aspects of, of culture, whether it's, you know, gone with the wind, whether it's seeing people perform in blackface, things like that. I think it can be helpful to be reminded of just how casual people were about something that is so obviously immoral. And I'm not saying that we should ever celebrate or embrace it, but I think maybe we should be reminded of it so that we be, can be on guard against doing the same thing ourselves. Mona, I, I, I was just going to add that I think a lot of people don't uh, realize that the Confederate statues, many of the Confederate statues put up uh, throughout the South, were not put up right after the Civil War. They were put up, as you suggested, um, right in the era of the uh, Ku Klux Klan and the sort of resurgence of Jim Crow uh, in, in that part of the country. And so, you know, this idea that somehow they're just honoring uh, the heritage of, of uh, the place is, I think, wrongheaded. And I do also think that it is extremely important that we recognize that when we're talking about naming military bases after uh, Confederate generals, this to me seems so wrongheaded. I don't remember that we have any military establishment in the United States named after Benedict Arnold. Uh, and in fact, what the Confederacy was, was a, um, I think, a traitorous uh, move that would... Uh, was to end the union and um, and the idea that somehow you know the the president uh, today I guess said that he didn't he wasn't going to allow the names to change and it's not actually his call it turns out but I find it very bizarre that we have named so many installations ships and other things after. Uh, the these Confederate uh, generals, because this was, in, in my view, this is not patriotic. Uh, it is the, the opposite of patriotic. These were people who rose up against the United States and that they should be honored uh, in the way that we have honored them by naming these facilities after them. I, I think it's outrageous. One of the arguments that you commonly hear is, well, but if we allow these monuments to be pulled down, if we pull down the statue of Robert E. Lee, where does it end? Where does it end? Are we now going to go after uh, the Washington Monument and the Jefferson Memorial in D.C.? I mean, after all, they were slave owners, too. Um, and, you know, look, there's no question that um, at our founding, um, many of our esteemed founding fathers were slave owners, and that is a black mark against them without any doubt, and many of them knew it. <laughs> but um, there are useful distinctions to be drawn. The fact is the members of the Confederacy uh, made war on this country. They, In order to preserve slavery, they actually were traitors, as you say, Linda, which was a, a term that was in common usage in the Civil War, um, and uh, but which cannot be said uh, about the founders. Um, it's funny, one of the, the 
forts that is under discussion to have its name changed is Fort Beauregard in Louisiana, which is named after G.T. Beauregard, who was the general who fired on Fort Sumter and and started the Civil War. Right, Um, right. So, you know, it's just just kind of mind boggling. Um, And um, but it is but another sort of interesting straw in the wind, and it may have something to do with the way the president's approval ratings are tumbling these days. But when a vote was taken in the Senate Armed Services Committee, the Republicans, all but one, I think, although it was a voice vote, I don't think we have an accurate count, but uh, except for Josh Hawley, who announced that he voted against it, but everybody else voted in favor of this plan to have a commission to talk about changing the names of these of these forts. And, you know, it is so important um, to recognize that we just don't, I mean, f- for, of course, it's immoral to honor people who fought for slavery. Um, and, but in addition, it's just not respectful of our fellow citizens who are African American and, and Native American and other backgrounds, because for them, it's a constant slap in the face to be asked to serve at a place that's named after uh, a Confederate general. It's just, uh, we have to be sensitive to how it feels to a significant part of our population. And by the way, a part of our population that is overrepresented in the military. Um, all right. Um, by the way, of course, there's always a tweet and, uh, <laughs> and so, and so, uh, the president tweeted that, um, that, it's, it's been suggested that we rename as many as 10 of our legendary military bases, such as Fort Bragg, Fort Hood, and Fort Benning, and the list goes on. These monumental and very powerful bases have become part of a great American history, heritage, and a history of winning victory and freedom. <laughs> but of course, the Confederacy lost the war. Right. Okay. I wouldn't bet a lot of money that Trump knows that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, you know, um uh the South Douglas, shall rise again. Fred, Frederick Douglass is getting a lot of attention these days. I mean, yeah, he's he's really popular. We have come to the section where we talk about uh something we'd like to draw attention to. Clark, let's begin with you. Um, so the thing I would like to draw attention to is the fact that America's criminal justice justice system is rotten to the core. And I wrote a, I wrote a pretty long uh, blog post about this on Cato, but I wanted to put it in a particular context. Um, we do two things that are completely indefensible with our criminal justice system. Uh, first is that we criminalize um, a, a large amount of activity that's not truly wrongful. So we authorize the government to do violence to people who haven't really done anything wrong. And that's hugely problematic for reasons that that we're seeing, I think, spill out into the streets. Um, But even arguably even more concerning is that we have jettisoned the constitutionally prescribed mechanism for adjudicating criminal charges, which is, of course, the jury trial. The jury trial is practically extinct on American soil because judges and prosecutors have learned how to hack the system so that we now have what amounts to a point and convict approach to criminal justice. Um, And the way we do that is by allowing prosecutors to use extraordinarily coercive methods to get people to plead guilty, which almost everybody in the system now does. Uh, And even 
regardless of how you feel about Michael Flynn and what he may or may not, may not have done, reflect on this for a moment. This is one of the most powerful men in the world, represented by multi-million dollar lawyers, and he was coerced by the Department of Justice into pleading guilty to a crime that it, it the department itself now says he did not commit. If they can do that to Michael Flynn, what do you suppose they can do to other people? And they do it every single day, day in and day out. That's how most convictions are obtained in the United States through coercion. And it renders the criminal justice system morally and politically illegitimate and indefensible. Yeah, that, it's really an interesting point. Uh, I read your piece and, and worth, uh, worth thinking about uh, more. Uh, okay, Linda. Well, I'm going to go in an entirely different direction. Uh, you talked a little bit ago, ago about the president's tweet, and I think we all saw the tweet he did earlier in the week when he said a Buffalo protester shoved by police could be an Antifa provocateur. Well, Alexandra Petri, who uh, writes a column in the Washington Post, did a very helpful column, and I think I'd like to read a little bit. Of, and it's called Know the Signs, How to Tell if Your Grandparent Has Become an Antifa Agent. She says, <laughs> she says for, for your birthday, she knits you an unwanted scarf to be used as a balaclava. She belongs to a decentralized group with no leadership structure that claims to be discussing a book, but no one ever reads the book. And all they do is drink wine. And my, and my, and my very favorite is always talking on the phone with an aunt you have never actually met in person. And Tifa? Question mark. So, anyway, I thought it was very cute. It's in today's post. And if you want a little light uh, reading, I, I recommend it. Very nice. Damon. Uh, well, picking up with uh, the journalism theme that we were talking about earlier, um, Jonathan Chait at New York Magazine has a really great piece that just came out uh, this morning. This is Thursday, titled The Still Vital Case for Liberalism in a Radical Age. And this is a great essay overall. It deals with the New York Times issue and, and some other uh, related examples. But it opens with a particularly upsetting uh, a story about a young uh, political data analyst named David Shore, uh, who got fired over the last week because he tweeted what to me looks like a pretty um, uh, anodyne uh, statement about uh, some research by a researcher from Princeton named Omar Wausau, uh, just talking about how violent racial protests actually hurt the left and peaceful protests help the left. Uh, sounds pretty commonsensical to me. There's been this empirical research, uh, supposedly, that verifies it. And all he did was tweet it out. And this led him to get a pile on on Twitter that ended up leading to him losing his job. Um, Do you remember where he worked? Uh, yes, at uh, Civis Analytics, hmm. which is a, a firm, a data processing firm or analysis firm. Um so, uh, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good example of, uh, you know, you can concede all you want that, you know, cultures cancel things and don't cancel other things and affirm other things and hold uh, certain uh, views in honor and others in dishonor. And we might be in a moment where we're moving some lines around, but uh, I don't think we really want to be moving the lines exactly there. There are a lot of people who are very cowed and intimidated these days in this environment and are afraid to say 
things that are quite reasonable and middle of the road for fear of running afoul of the speech police. So that is a worry. Bill. Now for something completely different. Uh, I'm a member of an organization called the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. A couple of years ago, they constituted a, uh, a commission on the reform of our democracy. Uh, and today they came out with their rep a report called Our Common Purpose, Reinventing American Democracy for the 21st Century. And uh, it contains a very serious discussion of no fewer than 31 different institute proposals for making American institutions and American civic culture uh, work somewhat better uh, than they are right now. Nobody's going to agree with, er with everything in this document, but it is a very useful roundup of ideas that have been in the air over the past decade and more, all in one place uh, with reasonable arguments to support them. So I commend it to anybody who thinks that our institutions are not in perfect working order. Thank you. Um, my item sort of is consistent with the theme of this podcast. It concerns J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter author, who has gotten into trouble on Twitter and elsewhere because she has pushed back against the idea that, um, that you have to accept that transgender women are um, indistinguishable from natal women from cis, what's called cisgender women. And she resists this idea. And for this, she has really been dragged considerably. And you know, she happens to be a very wealthy and powerful person and a strong, she has a strong spine and is willing to put up with the abuse. But and she's she also has a little bit of a sharp tongue, so some of this may be partly the way she phrased things. She she heaped a little bit of scorn on the use of a term "people who menstruate." She she writes, "I'm sure there used to be a word for those people. Someone help me out. Womben, wimpound, woo mud." Um, but uh, but look, it, the, her insistence that. Um, that there are differences between men and women and that, you know, while she respects trans people and wants them to have their full rights, she does not believe that the, she, she, she's calling for a certain amount of sensitivity about the fact that in certain jurisdictions, like in Scotland now, all you need to do to be able to enter any women's dressing room or bathroom is just say that you feel like you're a woman and sign a paper to that effect and you know no hormones no no surgery whatever you come on in and a lot of women are uncomfortable about that and she's trying to draw attention to it and and maybe put up a stop sign and um i think it's courageous on her part i think this is a this is a matter that does deserve sensitivity and so forth but at the same time there is this uh on this topic Particularly, there is a, a an ideological in, enforcement of orthodoxy that you have to be willing to say that any person, you know, any 
transgender woman, that is somebody who was born male and is transitioning to female, is a woman. And it is, um, you know, if you disagree with that, if you think there's something else, or if you think that it's it's complicated, um, you get punished. So I, I, I would encourage a little open-mindedness on this topic as well. And I think Rowling is showing a lot of courage. She's too big to cancel. <laughs> well, that's that's right. And but other people who don't have her wealth and power um, are are uh, not so lucky. All right. Well, thank you, one and all, for listening to Beg to Differ. We encourage your feedback. We encourage your letters. Thank you very much for that. And um, we thank uh, Clark Neely for his expertise and. Uh, Look forward to chatting again with uh, our regulars next week. 